Chapter Twelve of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End, by E. M. Forster. Chapter Twelve. Charles need not have been anxious. Miss Schlegel had never heard of his mother's strange request. She was to hear of it in after years, when she had built up her life differently, and it was to fit into position as the headstone of the corner. Her mind was bent on other questions now, and by her also it would have been rejected as the fantasy of an invalid. She was parting from these Wilcoxes for the second time. Paul and his mother, Ripple and Great Wave, had flowed into her life and ebbed out of it forever. The ripple had left no traces behind. The wave had strewn at her feet fragments torn from the unknown. A curious seeker, she stood for a while at the verge of the sea that tells so little, but tells a little, and watched the outgoing of this last tremendous tide. Her friend had vanished in agony, but not, she believed, in degradation. Her withdrawal had hinted at other things besides disease and pain. Some leave our life with tears, others with an insane frigidity. Mrs. Wilcox had taken the middle course, which only rarer natures can pursue. She had kept proportion. She had told a little of her grim secret to her friends, but not too much. She had shut up her heart, almost, but not entirely. It is thus, if there is any rule, that we ought to die, neither as victim nor as fanatic, but as the seafarer who can greet with an equal eye the deep that he is entering, and the shore that he must leave. The last word, whatever it would be, had certainly not been said in Hilton Churchyard. She had not died there. A funeral is not death, any more than baptism is birth or marriage union. All three are the clumsy devices, coming now too late, now too early, by which society would register the quick motions of man. In Margaret's eyes Mrs. Wilcox had escaped registration. She had gone out of life vividly, her own way, and no dust was so truly dust as the contents of that heavy coffin, lowered with ceremonial until it rested on the dust of the earth. No flowers so utterly wasted as the chrysanthemums that the frost must have withered before morning. Margaret had once said she loved superstition. It was not true. Few women had tried more earnestly to pierce the accretions in which body and soul are enwrapped. The death of Mrs. Wilcox had helped her in her work. She saw a little more clearly than hitherto what a human being is and to what he may aspire. Truer relationships gleamed. Perhaps the last word would be hope. Hope even on this side of the grave. Meanwhile she could take an interest in the survivors. In spite of her Christmas duties, in spite of her brother, the Wilcoxes continued to play a considerable part in her thoughts. She had seen so much of them in the final week. They were not her sort, 
they were often suspicious and stupid, and deficient where she excelled. But collision with them stimulated her, and she felt an interest that verged into liking, even for Charles. She desired to protect them, and often felt that they could protect her, excelling where she was deficient. Once past the rocks of emotion, they knew so well what to do, whom to send for. Their hands were on all the ropes, they had grit as well as grittiness, and she valued grit enormously. They led a life that she could not attain to, the outer life of telegrams and anger, which had detonated when Helen and Paul had touched in June, and had detonated again the other week. To Margaret this life was to remain a real force. She could not despise it as Helen and Tibby affected to do. It fostered such virtues as neatness, decision, and obedience. Virtues of the second rank, no doubt, but they have formed our civilization. They form character, too. Margaret could not doubt it. They keep the soul from becoming sloppy. How dare Schlegels despise Wilcoxes, when it takes all sorts to make a world? Don't brood too much, she wrote to Helen, on the superiority of the unseen to the seen. It's true, but to brood on it is medieval. Our business is not to contrast the two, but to reconcile them. Helen replied that she had no intention of brooding on such a dull subject. What did her sister take her for? The weather was magnificent. She and the Mossebachs had gone tobogganing on the only hill that Pomerania boasted. It was fun, but overcrowded, for the rest of Pomerania had gone there, too. Helen loved the country, and her letter glowed with physical exercise and poetry. She spoke of the scenery— quiet yet august, of the snow-clad fields with their scampering herds of deer, of the river and its quaint entrance into the Baltic Sea, of the Oderberge, only three hundred feet high, from which one slid all too quickly back into the Pomeranian plains. And yet these Oderberge were real mountains, with pine forests, streams, and views complete. It isn't size that counts so much as the way things are arranged. In another paragraph she referred to Mrs. Wilcox sympathetically, but the news had not bitten into her. She had not realized the accessories of death, which are, in a sense, more memorable than death itself. The atmosphere of precautions and recriminations, and in the midst a human body growing more vivid because it was in pain, the end of that body in Hilton Churchyard, the survival of something that suggested hope, vivid in its turn against life's workaday cheerfulness. All these were lost to Helen, who only felt that a pleasant lady could now be pleasant no longer. She returned to Wickham Place full of her own affairs. She had had another proposal, and Margaret, after a moment's hesitation, was content that this should be so. The proposal had not been a serious matter. It was the work of Fräulein Mosebach, who had conceived the large and patriotic notion of winning back her cousins to the fatherland by matrimony. England had played Paul Wilcox, and lost. Germany played Herr Forstmeister someone. Helen could not remember his name. Herr Forstmeister lived in a wood, 
and standing on the summit of the Oderberge, he had pointed out his house to Helen, or rather had pointed out the wedge of pines in which it lay. She had exclaimed, "'Oh, how lovely! That's the place for me!' And in the evening Frida appeared in her bedroom. "'I have a message, dear Helen,' etc. And so she had, but had been very nice when Helen laughed, quite understood, a forest too solitary and damp, quite agreed, but Herr Forstmeister believed he had assurance to the contrary. Germany had lost, but with good humour. Holding the manhood of the world, she felt bound to win. "'And there will even be someone for Tibby,' concluded Helen. "'There now, Tibby, think of that. Frida is saving up a little girl for you in pigtails and white worsted stockings, but the feet of the stockings are pink, as if the little girl had trodden in strawberries. I've talked too much. My head aches. Now you talk.' Tibby consented to talk. He, too, was full of his own affairs, for he had just been up to try for a scholarship at Oxford. The men were down, and the candidates had been housed in various colleges, and had dined in hall. Tibby was sensitive to beauty. The experience was new, and he gave a description of his visit that was almost glowing. The august and mellow university, soaked with the richness of the western counties that it has served for a thousand years, appealed at once to the boy's taste. It was the kind of thing he could understand, and he understood it all the better because it was empty. Oxford is Oxford, not a mere receptacle for youth like Cambridge. Perhaps it wants its inmates to love it rather than to love one another. Such, at all events, was to be its effect on Tibby. His sisters sent him there that he might make friends, for they knew that his education had been cranky, and had severed him from other boys and men. He made no friends. His Oxford remained Oxford empty, and he took into life with him not the memory of a radiance, but the memory of a colour scheme. It pleased Margaret to hear her brother and sister talking. They did not get on over well as a rule. For a few moments she listened to them, feeling elderly and benign. Then something occurred to her, and she interrupted. "'Helen, I told you about poor Mrs. Wilcox, that sad business.' "'Yes.' "'I have had a correspondence with her son. He was winding up the estate, and wrote to ask me whether his mother had wanted me to have anything. I thought it good of him, considering I knew her so little. I said that she had once spoken of giving me a Christmas present, but we both forgot about it afterwards. I hope Charles took the hint. Yes, that is to say, her husband wrote later on, and thanked me for being a little kind to her, and actually gave me her silver vinaigrette. Don't you think that is extraordinarily generous? It has made me like him very much. He hopes that this will not be the end of our acquaintance, but that you and I will go and stop with Evie some time in the future. I like Mr. Wilcox. He is taking up his work—rubber—it is a big business. I gather he is launching out, rather. Charles is in it, too. Charles is married—a pretty little creature, but she doesn't seem wise. They took on the flat, but now they have gone off to a house of their own. 
Helen, after a decent pause, continued her account of Stetton. How quickly a situation changes! In June she had been in a crisis. Even in November she could blush and be unnatural. Now it was January, and the whole affair lay forgotten. Looking back on the past six months, Margaret realized the chaotic nature of our daily life, and its difference from the orderly sequence that has been fabricated by historians. Actual life is full of false clues and signposts that lead nowhere. With infinite effort we nerve ourselves for a crisis that never comes. The most successful career must show a waste of strength that might have removed mountains, and the most unsuccessful is not that of the man who is taken unprepared, but of him who has prepared, and is never taken. On a tragedy of that kind, our national morality is duly silent. It assumes that preparation against danger is in itself a good, and that men, like nations, are the better for staggering through life fully armed. The tragedy of preparedness has scarcely been handled, save by the Greeks. Life is indeed dangerous, but not in the way morality would have us believe. It is indeed unmanageable, but the essence of it is not a battle. It is unmanageable because it is a romance, and its essence is romantic beauty. Margaret hoped that for the future she would be less cautious, not more cautious, than she had been in the past. End of chapter 12